I don't know about you, but I'm, I feel moved this morning <clears throat> by the witness of these veterans and thinking of churches all over this nation where veterans are being recognized today and how important it is for the church to pray for the nation and uh, the large number of leaders that we have <clears throat> that really have a sense of Christian uh, conviction in their service uh, for the nation. Well, <clears throat> thank you, veterans. Thank you, Sam and worship team. Well, we're moving now to the ministry of the word, and we're grateful to have a current missionary, Greg Fisher, who is serving in Africa, commutes back and forth, and uh, his ministry in this season of his life is about, hear this, come on up, Greg, the power of the word of God, the power of the word of God. How many of you know that the power for salvation is in the word of God? And his ministry, which is called Faith Comes by Hearing, that he uh, partners with Hosanna Ministries and his long background of mission work in the Foursquare Church. We saw that video of what's happening in Africa as people hear the word and believe. People hear the word and are healed. People hear the word and we even hear of resurrections from the dead. God is blessing his word in these times. Well, we want Greg to come and share with us whatever's on his heart, and we thank the Lord for their ministry. Greg, God bless you. <laughs> Amen. Amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Um, uh, three weeks ago, I was preaching this. This is a sermon that I had developed for... Uh, City Harvest Church in Nairobi. Uh, I felt impressed to to preach this same sermon again today, and um, from the things that we've been singing, I can see that uh, God has a theme. Uh, in Africa, I used to uh, teach uh, homiletics in the Bible College to undergraduates. Homiletics is how to prepare and deliver a sermon. It's probably not very obvious now. But I used to tell uh, pastors, I used to tell young guys coming up to be pastors that an expository sermon is like a cow in the field on a short rope that's staked down. And he has to just go around. He can't go any farther than that rope will allow him to go from the anchor. And so when we're preaching expository, we're anchored to a verse, and you don't go very far around. You expose that verse. Today what I'd say is that uh, sermon is <clears throat> like a tour bus ride. It meets you where you are and takes you to a specific destination. And today I'd like to take you to a specific destination. But first, I'd like to meet you where you are. If you would, um, I would like for us to do something uh, which is uh, very common from my uh, background. Uh, as a boy growing up in church, I'd like to invite you, if you would, uh, to stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. And we'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13 and um, we'll go to 53, chapter 53 and verse 1. 
Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. And uh, you can uh, look along there in your Bible, and I'll read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations." Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, and that which they have not, uh, that which they have not been told, they shall see, and that which they have not heard, they shall understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. This passage that uh, we are taking a look at in Isaiah is one of four very important passages in the book of Isaiah. They are called the servant passages, and they reveal to us the Messiah, the servant who is going to come. Starting in Isaiah chapter 42 And verses 1 through 9, skipping to Isaiah chapter 49, chapter 50, chapter 52, and chapter 53. There are four servant songs in in this Old Testament prophecy. And uh, this particular servant song is about God's servant. And it talks about violent grace. Violent grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor that met martyrdom while he was opposing the repressive Nazi regime in Germany, wrote, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. I want to tell you that today in the evangelical world, we need to be preaching a violent grace and not a cheap grace. The passage in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 does not teach cheap grace. It teaches a violent grace that impacts and transforms all that come into contact with it. When I moved to Kampala, Uganda to plant an urban church in that capital city, my wife and I realized that we were 
located on the edge of Kampala's greatest and most violent slum. And we realized that we were, loc- we were living in an area where the, the traditional fetish priests and witch doctors uh, were holding sway in that area. And when we came into that community, it was a violent encounter between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness. Not violent in a physical way, because we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against darkness in high places. It was a violent grace. It is a precursor to Christ's statement in John chapter 11 and verse 12 where he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The servant in this servant passage and his his mission, however, utterly fail. Yet, this servant will attain Matchless elevation. Although men and nations are appalled at his appearance, his form, that is to say, the way his life diverged from the ways of other men, was so significant, he will succeed in his mission. He will have startling accomplishment after undeserved suffering and apparent failure. The ultimate worldwide accomplishment by the one whose life is in the eyes of the world held in so little worth and wisdom will be staggeringly overwhelming. This suffering servant is a man of contrast. There's a contrast between the servant's exaltation and the accomplishment with his suffering and his humiliation. There is a contrast between what people thought of this servant and what was actually the case. And though man would cast him down and humiliate him, God would lift him up and glorify him. So let's look at our text. The first three verses that we read in Isaiah 52 introduced the servant and speak of his exalted glory. When we see the word behold in the text, behold my servant, look my servant. Um, That's a um, common word in French is attention, Uh, attention. And uh, as I'm riding through, as I'm riding through uh, uh, Yaoundé in Cameroon uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, there, it was a new driver driving the car, and the man I was with kept saying, attention, 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 drawing his attention to various places that he wanted him to see there was a danger, and uh, he, needed to be, he needed to be careful about his driving. And in this verse, God is telling us, pay attention. There's someone here that is very important. Pay attention to what I'm saying. The one who is going to be described, pay attention to him. If what this passage says 
about this man's capacity to take away sin is true, then by all means we should fix every bit of our attention upon him. He will establish the new covenant in the light of the world. Two important points are made in this verse. First is his character and his holy life. He's called my servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. That's the first thing we find out about him. My servant will wisely prosper. He will wisely prosper by doing what the Lord wants him to do. He will act with such wisdom and obedience that his efforts will be successful. This uh, word, prosper, is also used in uh, the book of uh, Joshua, chapter 1 and verse 8, where he says, I'm going to prosper you. Listen to my word. And in Jeremiah uh, uh, 10.21, linking the law of God and hearing the word of God to prospering, acting wisely. He will know to do both the right things in order to uh, accomplish the purpose that he was called. We find also that Jesus always did what his father wanted him to do. John chapter 8, verse uh, 29. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things which please him. Jesus was the servant described in this last of the servant songs. He was always obedient to his family, to his father. In English, we have a way of using a figure of speech when we want to really compound something. Um, We will use an oxymoron. You use them all the time, and you you may not even know they're called oxymorons. In in case you don't, uh, you'll pick something up from my sermon at least. An oxymoron is when we put two words together that are absolutely opposed or opposites to compound one of those words. So we say, it was awfully good. How could it be awful and good? No, we say that when we want to say, it was was very good, but we want to compound it. So we say, it was awfully good. Those are oxymorons. And our speeches, in English, our speech is full of oxymorons. We say uh, all kinds of things. In Hebrew, however, is more like Kiswahili. In Hebrew, you, you compound, you add upon add to emphasize that. In, in Kiswahili, we would say, Ikonizuri sana sana. Sana sana. Sana means much. So if we say, Iko ni, uh, nzuri sana sana. Nzuri means really, it means good. Or we could say njema, excellent. But if we want to say more than, than excellent, njema, we say 
sana sana on the end of nzuri. Nzuri sana sana. It's very, very good. It means it's, it's, ex, it's exploded. So this second point that's in this text is the compounding. He compounds. He says the servant will be high. He'll be lifted up. He'll be highly exalted. So he's compounded the term three times in order to tell us that there's no scale that we can imagine that, will, that would be able to measure the exaltation that God has for his servant. He says he will be lifted up. Lifted up refers to the kind of death that he died on the cross. And Jesus pointed to this in John chapter 12 and verses 32 and 33 when he said, As Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He was, it, it points to us the death that he died and to his being exalted at God's right hand. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, And God has exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that at his name every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, he had a perfect obedience. He suffered. He was obedient even to the death of the cross. And that's the reason why he is highly exalted in heaven. He'll not remain in his humiliation, but he'll be lifted up and he's going to tower over every element, over every name, every authority, every power, every kind of, of government, every kind of human system. He will tower over it in a way that cannot be measured. He will be exalted so high. Servant is the term that is used here. He's the, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who's worthy of such a high exaltation because of his willing humiliation and sacrifice that's described in Isaiah chapter 53. Because he was humiliated before men on the cross, God has lifted him above all principalities and powers as the sovereign of the universe. There's no one more exalted than the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all eternity. In striking contrast to his final glory, the terrible disfigurement of his servant is depicted in verse 14. Just as many as were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. This is the language of unimaginable trauma. This is the language of unimaginable trauma. I was watching um, the uh, History Channel. And um, there's two channels in our house that 
get watched a lot. History Channel is one, and then that um, one that I hope my wife wasn't watch anymore, where they give them ideas about how to fix the house up. <clears throat> Whatever channel that is, it, it's coverage of people you don't know buying their house. Uh, that one. Um, the History Channel had a man, they were discussing the Shroud of Turin which is supposedly the burial shroud of Jesus Christ because it has the imprint on it of a man who has been crucified. And the scientist that was talking about you know, all this scientific stuff at the end of it says, whether this is the burial shroud of Jesus Christ or not, I can't say. But what I know, and then he began to weep on camera. Tears were coming down his cheeks as he talked and he said what I know is that this man whoever it was was beaten and tortured beyond any human comprehension the servant was traumatized in a way that few had ever seen God had dealt with his Old Testament people severely, but they were never forgotten or forsaken. They still remained his covenant people. And oftentimes, God's new covenant people are dealt with severely, but they're never forsaken or forgotten either, just as God's chosen servant was not. Many will be appalled, could be translated awestruck, astonished, shocked. It, ex it, it expresses a mixture of surprise and aversion. Why were so many people appalled or astonished at the servant Jesus? The text suggests that one of the reasons was this horrible terrible physical abuse that he underwent during his trials and crucifixion. One might also uh, translate the next clause, such disfigurement, his appearance is hardly human. It's not hard to imagine the crowds in Jerusalem as he was going through the city with his cross on the way to Calvary, staring in horror at what their leaders and the Romans had done to Jesus. In speaking of the suffering of our Savior, Isaiah declares that when people see him, they will be startled because he was more marred than any man. Well, such kind of disfigurement is not so surprising when we recount the event of the crucifixion Jesus being blindfolded, his beard being plucked out, being struck, crown of thorns, being beaten with the, with the uh, uh, cat of nine tails. Uh, they beat him with canes. Uh, and then finally, uh, at the edge of death, he was forced to carry his cross. All of it had an effect, and he was marred beyond the appearance of man. Do you see the Lord in this slain condition? You need to look to you see him. For only then can you understand the price that he paid for sin. When we understand what took place on the cross, we are going to fall at his feet crying, Thou art worthy 
to receive glory and honor and power and dominion forever and ever. You see, Jesus was the one who has been slaughtered and slain for our sin, beaten with fists, whipped with the flagellum, the cat of nine tails, crucified on the cross, attacked by the hordes of hell. Jesus Christ was reduced to quivering flesh on the cross. And not until we see him will we begin to realize the unspeakable price that he paid on our behalf. Why such brutality? That's also contained there when it says his form went beyond men. That can also mean that the way he lived his life diverged from the ways of other men. That's what we know about Jesus. He was different. He was sinless. He had perfect obedience. He had absolute truthfulness. His integrity, his knowledge, his holiness, his rightful authority, and his righteousness are so different from that of fallen men that they despised who he was. Therefore, they held him in contempt, and the sin-seeking people had an aversion to him. The point here is that all suffering is encompassed here physical, mental, and spiritual. Instead of the servant demonstrating that he was the gift of God through his attractiveness and his personality and his winsomeness, the very opposite was true. We were repelled in the face of self-giving, undefensiveness, and appalled by the visage of one who would prefer to lose than to win with the wrong motive and the wrong reasons. Many of God's servants have been martyred by people who were blinded by hatred and lack of understanding. And Jesus said, you shouldn't be surprised because they treated him that way. The world will also persecute his disciples. But there's an even greater astonishment in store for the world. Isaiah says in chapter 15, in verse 15, that the nations will be speechless when they finally realize the awful mistake they made in rejecting the only one who can cleanse us from our sin. The world will see him. The world will see him. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Here's the third thing I want you to see in this passage, and that is the power of the blood. Why did the servant undergo such disfigurement? Because he endured this disfigurement and this crucifixion, he would be able to sprinkle people in many nations. And that's what's happening today. Sprinkle is associated with cleansing and purification by the priest under the Mosaic law. And what we find is that the the book of Hebrews recognizes a law that is built into our universe that says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And that the sprinkling of blood, it isn't by the sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats that we have been redeemed, but by his precious blood. It cleansed us. That's why his form was different. 
That's why he sanctified himself. That's why he remained innocent and pure, so that he might purify others. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. This servant, whom many have not considered important at all, will actually provide the most important thing that all nations are craving, every king is craving, and that is cleansing from sin. And that's why they'll shut their mouths. They're rendered speechless. And the final shocking revelation is that through the loss of all things, the Savior conquers all things. Many centuries ago on the south coast of China, high up on a hill overlooking a bay, the Portuguese who were settling there built a huge, enormous cathedral and they believed that weather and time that marked their, their achievement, uh, 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 they, they thought that this cathedral would stand against all the weather and time. And they marked their achievement by building into the front wall a massive bronze cross as the centerpiece of its front wall. Well, um, not too many years later, a typhoon came And God swept away all of man's handiwork, leaving only a portion of the front wall standing with the cross. Centuries later, men not far out of the same harbor fell into a shipwreck. Many of them died. Some lived. And one man hanging on to the wreckage from the ship was disoriented and frightened because he had lost sight of the land because of the storm. And yet each time, as the swell of the ocean lifted him up in the waves, he spotted the cross, which eventually guided him to safety. And now we've arrived at our destination, and that is the foot of the cross. To countless millions... That's what the cross means. It's his glowing symbol of rescue, leading stranded souls shipwrecked on sin's jagged reefs from the shadow of death's darkness to the new dawn shining out of life. It also is a place of hope to countless Christians who come back to the cross, bringing the scattered debris of their lives, yet... There, because of the violent suffering of Christ, amazing grace is offered. The suffering Christ experienced for us was beyond comprehension. But he experienced it for us that we need not suffer in hell if we do, that we need not suffering in hell if we accept his life and his death. What kind of God would do that? the kind who loves us so much that he would go to the greatest lengths to spare us judgment. Therefore, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today. Oh God, let us see you high and lifted up. Let us see you high and lifted up today.
your cross towering over the wreckages of time. Your cross, that healing point, that healing place where disfigured and marred lives are transformed by a violent grace that violently conflicts with sin and brings transformation to men and women. Lord, let us see that cross again clearly on this day to say, Lord Jesus... Your blood can cleanse me from every sin and all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. This has been a dynamic message on the suffering of Christ. And sometimes when we think about the Lord, we only think about the happy things. We only think about the things that pertain to our blessing. And there are times when we need to back up just a little bit and take time to recognize the cost that it took to bring to us the salvation that we so freely receive. And I I would like to ask you just to bow your heads with me for a moment. Something like this, a word like this, is bound to prick the heart of any who have not made a complete relationship with the Lord in their lives final. I want to ask you, just between you and the Lord, how many of you feel that there's something yet that needs to be cleared up between you and the Lord? You feel that you want to serve the Lord, but there's something that uh, is hindering you from that. And you just slip your hand up just as a confession between you and the Lord. That as Christians, are we living our life on the plane where we're honoring what the Lord has done for us, where we're honoring the Lord by walking with him in an upright and honest fashion. Are there any this morning that would lift your hand and say, Pastor, I have to admit, I've not been living as I should be for the Lord, and I want prayer. I I want to get that squared away. And I want to ask you all to stand with me if you can. And I want to pray with you, and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, You know the heart, and you know the desire that there is there. And sometimes we find limitations uh, cause us to feel somewhat inferior or to feel like we fail because we can't do what our heart wants us to do or what we think we ought. But we pray this morning for your grace and peace to settle into every heart for us to know again afresh and anew how valuable we are because of what Jesus suffered for us. We pray for your peace to be in every heart, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. You're dismissed.